This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we uncover the story behind the crowning of England's first official queen, Mary Tudor. Lots of people rallied to Mary, quite influential and important people from the aristocracy, who felt, with some justice, that what was being done in London was no more than a coup d'etat. We hear how Framlingham Castle in Suffolk played a key role in her becoming queen. And so here is Mary who comes here as a fugitive and suddenly she realises that actually she could really make a go of this, that she has got a lot more support than she really felt she had. And we'll discover why her reign was ultimately cut short. More from Framlingham Castle experts and Head Historic Properties curator Jeremy Ashby in just a few moments. First, though, let's take you through the other histories we'll be covering over the next few episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. It was the first bridge to be made out of cast iron. So many buildings today, the Burj Khalifa and the Empire State Building, all owe a little bit of debt to the Iron Bridge. What English Heritage felt was really significant here was that feeling of such a complete space, of it being untouched and being a bit of a time capsule. Quite often we have visitors who are very local and the first thing they'll do is come in and say it smells right, it smells just like how my uncle's workshop used to smell. The Sixth Earl of Chester, when he started building Beeston in 1225, he wanted it to be a massive fortress. And originally the walls were all painted white, so it really would have been a beacon in the landscape. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. Now this week, we're talking about the Tudors. Mary Tudor, to be exact. The very first reigning Queen of England. She was the firstborn child of King Henry VIII and a daughter to both him and Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife. But Mary was effectively the product of a series of failed attempts for Henry to secure a male heir. Mary's mother had already given birth to three boys, but the eldest only lived to around 50 days old. This eventually set Henry on a path to getting his marriage annulled and to the creation of the Church of England. But Mary was a passionate Catholic, and when she did eventually become queen, it was only due to the death of her younger brother, King Edward, and he was raised as a Protestant. All of this and more made for turbulent times in Tudor England. And it's at Framlingham Castle in Suffolk, on a relatively calm summer's morning, where we pick up the story. Hi, I'm Jeremy Ashby. I'm the head properties curator of English Heritage. I'm a historian and archaeologist, and I'm standing outside the gatehouse of one of my favourite castles, Framlingham Castle in Suffolk. And this is where Mary Tudor would have arrived in 1553. Yeah, I think she comes to Framlingham on the 12th of July 1553 and actually the gatehouse would look not unlike what it looks like now. It's got big thick oak gates which are of the 16th century. It's a Tudor archway in carved stone and over the top of it though now it's rather eroded is the coat of arms of the previous owners, the Howard family, the Dukes of Norfolk. And other than that, actually she would recognise what we can see today. We just recapped a brief history of Mary Tudor in the preamble to the podcast. She was the first reigning Queen of England, the Queen Regnant, but she faced a number of obstacles to the throne, didn't she? What were the main ones? Being a woman and being a Roman Catholic are the two simple things. If you'd actually asked before 
July 1553, whether Mary would be queen ever in her life, most people would probably say no. Though she was the oldest child of King Henry VIII, the great Tudor monarch, famously, Henry wanted a son. He felt that the secure succession of the throne would not work by bringing a daughter onto the throne. And famously, his first wife, Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, could not give him the son he needed, and so he transferred his affections to Anne Boleyn, and she didn't give him the son that he wanted either. She brought in another daughter, Elizabeth, and it was the third queen, Jane Seymour, who finally gave birth to a male child, Edward. And Mary, at that time, actually was probably quite relieved because suddenly the question of succession was quite straightforward and that must have simplified her life quite a lot. She'd been in favour, she'd been out of favour before, but they'd been waiting for a boy to come along and finally the boy came along. And when Henry died in 1547, Edward duly became the King of England. Right, Jeremy, well, let's um, go through the archway of the gatehouse and head into the main castle grounds. Why does she come to Framlingham Castle? Well, we've just now come through the gatehouse. Uh, We came on foot. She would doubtless have been on horseback. And she comes here as a fugitive. She comes here specifically because just a few weeks before, her brother, Edward VI, had died. He'd been sickening for quite some time. And he, in his last days, had altered the succession from what it had been. The expectation previously had been that Henry VIII had imagined on his death in 1547 that Edward would become king, followed by any heirs of his body, but if there were none, the next in line would be one of his daughters, Mary or Elizabeth. Edward had different ideas, particularly because Edward was afraid that Mary, who had always remained a very trenchant Roman Catholic, would reverse the development of Protestantism that had happened during his reign. The church had basically become a Protestant church. So he altered the succession to say that the next in line should be Henry VIII's great-niece, the Protestant Lady Jane Grey, who was promptly married to the son of a very powerful courtier, the Duke of Northumberland. And by that means, Edward felt that the Protestant succession would be secured by cutting Mary out. Mary comes to Framlingham as a fugitive. She probably felt that actually if she'd gone to see Edward on his deathbed, she might have been arrested. And her supporters tipped her off that Edward was going to die and arranged for her to be spirited away to the relatively safe area of East Anglia. And that's where we are now. So who owned Framlingham Castle around the time that Mary was this fugitive and arrived here to take refuge? Fortunately, Mary owned it herself. She had received Framlingham Castle in 1547. It had been part of the estate of the Dukes of Norfolk, but the Dukes of Norfolk had fallen out with Henry VIII, and Mary got some of their estates. She got a manor nearby called Kenning Hall that they lived in, and she got Framlingham Castle, which is a big castle. And what we can see now when we stand there, it's got very, very high walls with a ring of towers all the way around the outside. What we now can't see, sadly, because it was demolished in the 17th and 18th century, was that the courtyard was full of very, very fine buildings that the Howards had built for themselves. A great hall, a chapel, a chamber, kitchens. It was actually like a palace, but within a big and fortified shell. So an absolutely perfect place for Mary to come where she would be safe 
But as it turned out, where actually being in command of a powerful castle, she would start to look like a queen. We should probably point out that the castle has a, a long history up, up until the point that Mary arrives as well. It does. The castle actually had existed since much earlier in the Middle Ages and most of what we're seeing now in terms of the walls was built before the end of the 12th century by the Bigod family, the Earls of Norfolk. So it's, a, it's an illustrious castle, architecturally very, very fine, and it's known to be ancient, an absolutely perfect stage for Mary to appear in power and in greatness. When she first got here, she was effectively fleeing for her life. All the political power was in the hands of her enemies, the Protestant authorities in London and the Privy Council who'd thrown their weight behind Lady Jane Grey as Queen Jane. And when Mary came here, we don't really know what her plan was. It's possible that actually the, the thought was if things didn't work out for her, she would have to escape across the Channel for she had friends on the continent of Europe. But the surprise was that she had many supporters here because she shared their Roman Catholic religion. They hadn't gone over to the Protestant side during Edward VI's reign, and that's part of it. But historians are working quite a lot at the moment to identify that Mary had fairly close connections in East Anglia, in Suffolk and in Norfolk, where there were friends of friends, people in her household could also contact their friends and their supporters. And lots of people rallied to Mary, and not just the common sort, but actually some quite influential and important people from the aristocracy, who felt, with some justice, that what was being done in London was no more than a coup d'etat. It wasn't fair play that to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne was going against the rightful order of things. It was a going against the will of Henry VIII, who now died. Yes, but it was also, remember, it was the will of Edward VI, who had been king afterwards. So, you know, On it's, the other it's, hand, it's, he was also just a boy. What does he really know? Well, he was the rightful king of England, <laughs> and, you know, no one knew that he was sickly and going to be dying. But... What does seem fairly clear is that actually there was something of a conspiracy here, particularly powerful noblemen who felt that they could exploit the situation of the sickening and finally the dead boy king to actually strengthen their own position. And doubtless, if Lady Jane Grey had reigned as Queen Jane for longer, much of the real power would have been in the hands of her father-in-law, the Duke of Northumberland, and his cronies. And it was really too avoid that kind of situation that people said well actually I really think that Mary has a strong claim to the throne and for people who retained their Catholic religion that must have been an additional attraction and so here is Mary who comes here as a fugitive and suddenly she realizes that actually she could really make a go of this that she has got a lot more support than she really felt she had as her star rose very clearly, people in London started to get nervous. The Duke of Northumberland sent out an army, an expeditionary force, out from London towards Suffolk to try and arrest her. So it almost looked, while she was at Framlingham, as if things might come to blows, might come to battle. And it's at that moment that actually we know the most about what's going on at Framlingham, the events of one particular day, Thursday, July the 20th. And that's a day when it was decided that the full force, the military force of Mary at Framlingham would 
parade, as it were, in the deer park in front of the castle, and that Mary, who probably had spent most of her time inside the castle, would actually come out and inspect them. And it's one of those moments that we know a little bit about because there's a description that seems to be a, a first-hand description from a Roman Catholic gentleman called Robert Wingfield, who writes this as part of a longer description of the life of Mary. But it's a very vivid piece of description, and he points out about how all the large numbers of soldiers, archers and men with guns, with the different kinds of weaponry, they unfurled their standards as a show of defiance and a show of support for Mary out in the deer park. And then in the afternoon, Mary herself on horseback came down and rode around with the army and inspected them. You can imagine it now, okay, on a beautiful sunny day, when the castle is thronged with schoolchildren having a whale of a time, but it really does look like a castle. And surely with your imagination, just putting the soldiers arrayed outside, the banners flying, the trumpets, the horses, the music. Wingfield at one point says, you know, as the horses of her cavalry rode around, it was a thunderous sound, their hooves striking the ground. So clearly it was a great impression. And it marks the point at which people elsewhere obviously getting intelligence of this kind of thing thinks you know what the game is up and more and more people were defecting to Mary's cause all over the place and finally what happens is that the Royal Council in London who'd come out for Queen Jane said the game's up we're not going to carry this on and even the Duke of Northumberland knowing that he would end up in the Tower of London threw his hat in the air and shouted God save Queen Mary so Lady Jane Grey, how long is she on the throne for? Lady Jane Grey, she's always known as the Nine Days Queen, and that's, you know, as far as we can tell, that's about right. She goes into imprisonment in the Tower of London, and she actually stays as a prisoner in the Tower for several months. So Lady Jane Grey is a, is a prisoner at this time. How long does she remain a prisoner, and then what is her ultimate fate? She remains a prisoner until early 1554, and her problem is that there's a rebellion against Mary's authority in early 1554, led by Sir Thomas Wyatt, backed up by men of Kent. That rebellion is defeated, but clearly it rattles Mary's government, and things that people that are perceived to be a threat to her, she comes down on them very hard. So Lady Jane Grey at that point is beheaded in the Tower of London. And it's around that time that another famous incident happens that Elizabeth, Mary's own half-sister, is brought into the Tower of London on suspicion that she'd been involved with White's Rebellion, which she probably hadn't. But nevertheless, it's deemed that she is too dangerous to leave at large, and so she comes into the Tower as a prisoner, later commuted to house arrest. But actually, she is very closely looked after for the rest of Mary's reign. This is a veritable soap opera. We've got more or less an unwanted daughter of Henry VIII, who desperately wanted an heir. King Edward VI dies, age 15. Mary, by sort of proxy, becomes queen because Lady Jane Grey falls out of favour with the establishment. It's just, well, it's so complicated. It's very complicated, and as many TV dramatists and filmmakers have picked up, there's a family drama, but it has consequences for the national and international affairs. And for the person in the street, or the person at court, if you like, particularly, what is the line that you're supposed to take with religion anymore? That the things that actually were favoured one day actually are bad the next day and potentially dangerous. And that is something that certainly, you know, is a problem 
through Edward VI's reign, it remains a problem through Mary's reign, and it was a problem through much of Elizabeth's reign as well, because the question of religion becomes quite close to the question about whether your loyalties truly lie with the monarch sitting on the throne of England, or whether you should be actually under suspicion that you would rather that that monarch were replaced by someone else whose views are closer to your own. It's what makes the period so emotive even now, and among modern Protestants and Roman Catholics, there are strong historiographical traditions about people who suffered, Protestants suffering under Mary, Catholics suffering under Elizabeth, that even now actually can be very upsetting to talk to people. It's a period about which people retain very strong views. It's a very polarising time in, in not many years. It's like the poles of the planet keep shifting from one side to the other. One minute you're Protestant, the next minute you're Catholic. One minute you're tied to the monarch, the next minute you're tied to the Pope in Rome. Yes. Now, of course, we have the advantage that we knew what happened. But, of course, to people, Catholics living in Edward's reign, they might have thought that he was going to live a very long reign. And likewise, Protestants under Mary. As it happens, both of those reigns are very short. And that, to some extent, hasn't worked well for either Edward or Mary, that they're bookended by big personalities with long reigns. The father, Henry VIII, and Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth, who reigns for most of the rest of the 16th century. We now move away from the grassed centre of the castle to get some other perspectives on Mary's reign. So we've just come into the cafe, which is a later addition to the castle grounds. This is 18th century. It's part of the 18th century workhouse, but actually the old wall that we're looking at is part of the great hall that was built in the Middle Ages that Mary would have known. So there are still traces if you know where to look for them. OK, and we're going to be heading up the stairs here through some of the exhibition area, and this will take us to the ramparts. That's right, that's where we're going to go up onto the, onto the wall walk, and you can walk all the way around the circuit, with the exception of the building that we're at, which is very unusual that such a thing should survive in an English castle. Remind yourself, this is slightly worn stairs. So, Jeremy, we've done most of the ramparts. We've walked all the way around and we've got fantastic views of Framlingham Village and a 360-degree view of lots of beautiful countryside and, of course, uh, what would have been the moat. And There's also a lake to one side. But there is an ominous cloud sitting behind the beautiful sunshine and this sets us up very nicely to talk about how Mary Tudor, Mary I, got the nickname Bloody Mary. Yes, it's a difficult subject to talk about even now, and I think lots of historians would feel unhappy about that, but it is true that that's a term that's, that's often used, and it's in relation to one particular part of Mary's reign. Mary, is, as I've said, was a very trenchant Roman Catholic, and her ambition was always to reverse the Protestant reforms that her brother had brought in to bring back the Roman Catholic hierarchy of bishops and cardinals, to bring back the monks monasticism and ultimately to reconcile the Church of England which you know had been under the supreme headship of Henry VIII and Edward VI to take that back to Rome. Obviously there were Protestants that were unhappy about all of this and particularly writers who'd gone into exile. One man in particular, John Fox, wrote a notorious book, Acts and Monuments, which is often called Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it's actually a quite radical bit of pamphleteering and it lists the supposed persecutions that were carried out by Mary and her officials 
against members of the Protestant religion. Now, how much of this Mary wanted is rather difficult now to say, and I wouldn't want to say she didn't encourage it, she wasn't involved, but it certainly does seem to be the case that the more hawkish members of her clergy encouraged the going after heretics. Now, the penalty of heresy is to be burned at the stake, and in total, something like 290 people were executed for heresy during Mary's reign, which is in a short reign of five years. That's actually quite a shocking total. What seems to be the case is that Mary and her officials probably miscalculated. I think what they believed is that Protestantism hadn't really gone very far in England, that it was being driven by a few extreme radicals, and that actually if they were got out of the way, then the country would quietly fall back into line as they had been, say, in 1529 during Henry VIII's reign. This really wasn't the case, and as time went on, they realised that it wasn't just a matter of getting rid of a few Protestant bishops. Actually, there were a whole number of other figures whose commitment to Protestantism was, was deeper, and it went further down the stratum of society. So it's particularly the tradition of Fox's Book of Martyrs that I think has encouraged this black legend, as it's sometimes called, And there's an element of truth in it, but there's an element of extremism in it. And of course, the term Bloody Mary, it taints, as it were, the whole of her reign, whereas actually it is just one part of Mary's reign. And her reign was very short, wasn't it? Her reign was very short. I mean, eventually it it was brought to a premature end, some might say, through physical infirmity and illness. And much of the time is given over to the questions of her marriage, the questions of the succession. There were at least two moments where she felt she thought she was pregnant, only to turn out that actually she wasn't pregnant, and possibly the second of these, the false pregnancy, was actually the illness that finally killed her, an illness, something in in, in the stomach, perhaps. What did she actually die of, then, after these five years? I'm actually not, not sure whether we actually have a firm diagnosis of what it was that finally killed her off. Nevertheless, she only reigned for five years, so she died at the age of uh, the age of 42, a relatively young age. And, of course, she's followed by Elizabeth, who reigns for a very long time, reigns for the rest of the 16th century and into the 17th to a ripe old age. Is it a fairly uneventful reign? Well, it doesn't have vast numbers of big wars or anything else of that kind, and they're relatively unsuccessful. It does have a number of reforms in religion which actually took quite a long time for Elizabeth to unpick when Elizabeth did return the country back to Protestantism and we should acknowledge I think the challenges that Mary felt there wasn't really a precedent for a woman reigning in her own right and to that extent it's rather remarkable that should we possibly see that that actually Elizabeth benefited enormously from experiences that Mary had gained, that some things worked and some things didn't work? I mean, is it possible that the famous question of whether Elizabeth should marry was coloured in some way by remembering how unpopular Mary had made herself by contracting an unpopular marriage to a foreign prince? I'm sure that that might have been in Elizabeth's mind when people were bringing up various European princes and saying, well, here's this chap, he'd be good for you, and thinking, well, I think that might play quite badly in the country. And, you know, some of the things that Elizabeth said about being married to the realm, Mary had said that before. So Mary had blazed a new trail, and she hadn't been entirely unsuccessful. I mean, ultimately, much of what she did hasn't survived, And her reign wasn't long for other other reasons. But it wasn't a complete disaster. It didn't fall apart. She did reign for five years. Five years of, you know, not complete instability. 
We often refer to her as Mary Tudor, not Mary the First. Why is that? And do you think she gets much credit? Yeah, I think that is a quite bad thing, really. Why She should be referred to as Mary the First. I think we just need to... The tradition of referring to her as Mary Tudor, in my opinion, it's just we've got to separate her out from a number of other Marys. I mean, in particular, not that long afterwards, we have Mary, Queen of Scots, who's another very big personality and you know, has a big impact on the domestic politics of England, even though she was Queen of Scotland. And ultimately, of course, it was her son, James VI of Scotland, who became James I, King of England. So I think but there's a bit of separating stuff out. And just to remind us that, you know, Mary Tudor, she was a Tudor. That's the period that she comes from. She's different to Mary II, who comes towards the end of the 17th century. But yeah, that's true, that we don't have that many of our monarchs that have, as it were, almost like a nickname. And she's got one. And in a way, it slightly belittles her achievement. Yeah, she probably should just be referred to as you know, Mary the First. Jeremy, as we look back towards those clouds over there on the horizon, it looks like the sun is glinting through. And this brings us on to the question of the positive legacy for Mary, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. What is the legacy that she left for female monarchs to come? and also for women hundreds of years on in the 21st century? The glib answer is that it's too, still too early to say, even though this is the 16th century, because Mary's reputation is, is still being argued over. But I think it's not an insignificant thing that she's now being recognised as the title of books, say, the first Queen of England. That was a great achievement that can't be allowed to be completely overshadowed by her more famous sister Elizabeth. So, yeah, she, she showed that it was possible. And I think up until her time, it was very definitely the last possible case. So, you know, with the famous qualities of the Tudors, that infuriating but sometimes very successful strong will, Mary and Elizabeth managed to carry it off. So they were trailblazers in a way. Yeah, they were. And it's not for me to say whether Victoria and our present Elizabeth II should pay a debt of gratitude to Mary but certainly I think you know you can draw lines if you want to. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about Framlingham Castle head to our dedicated page on the English Heritage website. To discover more about Mary Tudor's time here and to be transported back to Tudor times don't miss the Bloody Mary's Castle event taking place at Framlingham Castle from the 24th to the 26th of August. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. See you next time.